Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than a million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss becoming a super learner. We dig into questions that I've pondered for a long time. Does speed reading work? Can we actually speed read and increase our reading comprehension? Are there strategies you can use to improve your memory? And perhaps most importantly, How can you align the way you think, learn, and remember with the way your brain actually operates? We go into this and much more with our guest, Jonathan Levy. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure You sign up, join the email list. There's so much cool stuff on there that only subscribers are going to get, including a free guide that we created based on listener demand, a guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide when you sign up and join the email list today. Next, you're going to get curated weekly emails from us every week, including our Mindset Monday email, which listeners have been absolutely loving. It's short, it's simple, videos, articles, things we've found fascinating within the last week. And you're going to get exclusive access and ways to change the show. You can vote on guests, you can help us change our intro music, you can even submit your own personal questions to our guests and much more. So be sure to sign up and join the email list, become part of our community. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're out and about, if you're driving around, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. That's SMARTER to 44222. In our previous episode, 
we discussed how money messes with your brain. We looked into the obvious traps we fall into when we think about money, examined how cultural influences shape our financial choices, and explored the key biases that underpin the most common and dangerous financial mistakes that you are most likely to make with our guest, Jeff Chrysler. If you want to understand how you often misunderstand money, listen to that episode. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Jonathan Levy. Jonathan is an author, learning expert, and founder of Superhuman Enterprises. He's the author of the book, Become a Super Learner, and has helped over 120,000 students improve their learning methodology through his online courses. He's been featured on the TED stage, and his work has been published in Inc., The Wall Street Journal, and much more. Jonathan, welcome to The Science of Success. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. So I'd love to start out with, I've got a ton of questions I'm fascinated with, with memory and speed reading and all these things. I'm curious, how did your own sort of personal journey with becoming a memory expert begin? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. See, the way I always tell the story is, I don't think you devote your career to becoming an expert in memory and improved learning because you're seen as a bright student growing up. (laughs) I think it takes a certain amount of coming home with tears streaming down your face. And that was certainly my case. I was always a problem student. I was a bright kid to hear my parents tell the story, but I had a lot of difficulties with learning in an institutional environment. By the time I was eight, it was no longer cute anymore that I couldn't sit still and my parents had me tested for ADD. And rather than kind of condemning me and and having it put on my record, they had me tested very quietly and privately and then dealt with it on their own. So I spent a lot of my youth and student career just drugged out on Ritalin, which to my parents' defense turned out to be a really, really good thing because it was the only way that I got through high school, university, and graduate school. That was basically the way that I thought that I had to learn. I thought that I needed drugs to learn. I thought that I was never going to be an exceptional student except for in English, essentially. And I thought that in order to succeed in kind of the framework that we're all forced to learn in the school system, that's what what it would take. And I was very fortunate that I, before going into my master's degree, which was going to be a very condensed one-year program or 10-month program where you do two years worth of coursework, I was very, very fortunate that I met someone who I would later call a super learner. And the story goes that he had done a couple of PhDs in machine learning and information systems and coincidentally had gotten married to a woman who was working with special needs children, specifically children with dyslexia, memory issues. And the two of them kind of sat down when they had kids and said, can we build a methodology to ensure that our kids are able to learn effectively? And they studied a lot of the greats, the Tony Buzans, all the way back to the Greeks and the memory techniques that even Aristotle was doing. And they started teaching them not only to their kids, but to other children that were in their lives, you know, in their professional background and career. And I was very, very lucky that I managed to run into this person while doing an unpaid internship before my MBA. And I immediately said, you know, well, I don't believe in all that stuff. I tried the Evelyn Wood speed reading program. I tried the PX method and none of this stuff actually works. And uh, they kind of said, what do you have to lose? You know, They gave me a bunny back guarantee and I sat down with them for six weeks and did intensive one-on-one tutoring. And then I went off to my MBA and 
I was just a totally, totally changed animal. I won't say that I was able to sit through 12 hours of coursework without Ritalin, <laughs> but I was able to actually, for the first time in my life, do all the reading material, keep up with other students and enjoy what I was learning and memorize things much faster. So, uh, to make a long story short, after finishing my MBA, I didn't know what, what I would do, where I would go and what kind of entrepreneurial opportunity I would pursue. And I decided to try and see if I could take their lessons and put them online, apply the things that I had learned, such as speed reading and memory, to learning more about this field. I did more research. I did more studies. I picked up more techniques and uh, obviously did a good bit of learning about online courses and how to run a, an online business and many, many other things. We were very blessed to have success right out of the gate because I think this is something that so many people want to learn and need to learn. And also, I think that, you know, the proof's in the pudding. I sat down and over the course of a weekend, read everything I could about how these marketplace websites work and how online courses work and how do you record videos and how do you edit videos and all this stuff. You know, the results don't lie, I suppose. So from then till now, over the last four years, as you said, we've gotten about 120,000 students through the program. We have courses at every different level and, and a book and a weekly podcast and yeah, that's that's kind of our mission is to help people learn anything and everything faster and with more ease. And I remember you sharing uh, kind of an interesting anecdote in, in your TED Talk where you talked about a friend of yours who, who could read, I think, 2,000 words a minute. Yeah, that was the gentleman who introduced me to his wife. Now, 2,000 words per minute, I do want to say is not 100% retention. It's a peak speed, of course. Probably his his everyday reading speed is more like 900 to 1200 words a minute. But yeah, to give people a little bit of context, your average college graduate in their native language reads about 250 words per minute. I, at my fastest ever, you know, when I was reading reams of paper every day and I was really in my best shape, I was reading about 750 to 800 words a minute with 80 to 90% comprehension. So you're talking about on average about a 3x improvement in reading speed. That's staggering. And I, and I want to dig into really concretely is sort of how you did that and how especially you maintain the comprehension, because that's been one of my biggest struggles with speed reading is, is kind of how that impacts comprehension. But before we do, you know, I wanted to underscore one other thing you said that I thought was really interesting, which is your kind of struggle through the current education system and, and more broadly how science has kind of taught us a lot of things about how the brain learns. And yet, it seems like our society really hasn't actually implemented any of those or taken any of those right. into account when crafting kind of our, our educational curriculum. Yeah, you know, it's it's a really incredible thing. I had the very blessed opportunity to sit down with Harry Lorraine, who started, I mean, if you think about Tony, Tony Buzan as the father of mind maps or the modern father of mind maps and speed reading, Harry Lorraine is the father of mnemonic techniques. He used to go on the Johnny Carson show in the fifties and sixties, memorize everybody in the audience, 1500 names, and then recite them on air. You know, talk about just someone who brought these techniques and who actually rediscovered them in many ways from the ancient Greeks who were using them. And I asked him, I said, you know, Harry, you've been at, I've been at this three, four years. You've been at this 55 years. 
why is this not in schools? And he said, you know, schools seem to have, they try to be so progressive and they seem to have this phobia around the word memorization. He told me the story of how he went in to a superintendent and said, you know, well, I'm an expert in memorization. And the immediate response was, well, we don't teach memorization. Memorization is the enemy. And he goes, okay, well, you know, you're teaching kids the grammatical rules of a language you're teaching kids, you know, how to use formulas in algebra, how do you think those things are getting into their minds? And I think we need to distinguish between rote memorization and actual memory. And I think there's a huge problem in schools today where they shy away, rightfully so, from memorization, but they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so what we're doing is we're not using memory techniques, mnemonics, because we're afraid of this idea of rote memorization, when in fact, there are certain things, you know, Pythagorean theorem, you need to memorize multiplication tables, you probably need to memorize even though every student has an iPhone in their hand at this point, vocabulary words, we need to be memorizing. So I think that's part of the big problem. I think the other part is, is people just, they have no concept of how powerful and how effective these tools are. Only recently have we started seeing studies that are actually testing, you know, not drugs to enhance concentration, but actually what happens in the brain when we sit someone down, we teach them the method of LOCI, we teach them visual mnemonic strategies. And the results have been staggering. I think it's, it's really starting to become a renaissance in understanding how the brain works. And I guess we have to credit a lot of the research that's been done around meditation over the last couple of decades, because it's really led the way in saying, oh my God, the brain is so incredibly plastic. Who would have thought that you can actually upgrade your brain? You can change the structure of the prefrontal cortex. You can change cortical gyrification. You can change all these incredible things just by using your brain differently. You know, in, in the case of meditation, by concentrating on your breath for 10 minutes a day, you can actually change the physical structure of the brain and the neurochemistry. And so I think what's happened is once that research started to become accepted and started to become legitimate, people could then say, hey, we're going to sit down 30 people and, you know, 15 of them were going to teach how to use a memory palace and 15 of them were just going to give a list of numbers to memorize and let's see what actually happens to their brains. You know, it's funny. Evolution obviously sort of crafted our brains to learn in certain ways and yet most of the strategies and tactics that we use both in in sort of public education but also just in our own lives trying to learn and memorize things uh, are almost at odds with that oh yeah yeah it's, it's beautiful what you just said because i like to i joke around a friend of mine is rob wolf who i also met kind of through podcasting and i really admire his work and i always like to tell him that what he does for diet and nutrition i want to do for memory i want to talk about paleo learning because it, it's really exactly the same principle you know if you're familiar with rob and his work and, and dr lauren cordain it's all about let's just figure out what we did with our bodies and our digestive tracts before you know, the, the agricultural revolution, let's just go back to that because everything was a lot better when we were all eating, you know, natural, healthy, unprocessed food from nature. And it's the exact same thing with uh, the super learner technique. It's, you know, we weren't learning in these boring, rigid textbooks. We were learning in very visual and very graphic ways. We were learning around spatial awareness, which is what the memory palace technique does and why it works. Uh, we were connecting everything to our pre-existing knowledge. And if you go 
even as far back as 1955, you look at the works of, of Dr. Malcolm Knowles, people are starting to discover like, wait a minute, adults need this connection to pre-existing knowledge. They need to understand pressing applicability to the things that they're learning. And so it's exactly as you said, you know, it, it's, it's going back and it's using our brains the way that they're intended to be used as opposed to the way that the industrial revolution intended, which is how do we churn out workers as fast as possible and in the most efficient way as possible for limited tasks that have limited creativity. And if you look, I mean, I'm the product of, of great schooling. And so I don't want to completely bash the school system. It was designed very intentionally around an industrial economy that churns out worker bees. And it, it's rare that you find someone who develops their creativity and their entrepreneurial spirit and kind of all these things that we today in our service economy value and prioritize and reward. It's very rare that someone learns that in school. They learn it at ballet practice. They learn it, you know, with mentors, they learn it with their parents at home. They learn it even with a teacher after school, you know, at wrestling practices where they learn that discipline and, and that charisma, they're not learning it in the classroom, which was designed around a totally different set of, uh, ends that are no longer valuable to us, I think. So I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe some examples or some specific studies that talk about kind of how the brain actually learns and what the science says about it. Yeah, absolutely. So not too long ago, a little under a year ago, we got, you know, in our Google alerts, just a get like you would think if you looked at this piece of research that we funded it or something like that, but it was just a gift that fell into our laps. And it turns out that researchers at Radboud University in the University of Netherlands had basically decided to do the study that we'd been trying to fund on our own <laughs> for quite some time. And, and what they did is basically they took a bunch of people and they did a 40 day long study with 30 minute training sessions, which is actually coincidentally exactly what's in our market materials is, you know, study for this long for 30 minutes a day. And what they did is they taught a group of people strategic memory techniques, specifically the memory palace technique. If anyone isn't familiar with the memory palace technique, we can kind of go into that in more depth. But if you've seen Sherlock, that's the technique. It's actually a real thing. And then they had people do rote memorization. And then they gave people no memory training whatsoever. They gave them lists of words to try and remember, right? So 72 words and they asked them to try and remember as many as possible. Then they came back and had the same groups of people try to, without any continued training, four months duration, right? Try to do the same thing. So they were trying to understand two things. Number one, in the immediate term, are we actually getting better results? Are we able to immediately, after learning skills for a matter of minutes or hours, are we able to improve our memorization? And four months later, if we tell these people, okay, don't practice, don't bother with it, are you actually seeing lasting effects or is it a fluke? In tandem to that, they also studied the brains of 23 world-class memory athletes. I don't know where they found 23 of them because the memory athlete community is pretty small and, and pretty selective, but 23 world-class memory athletes and 23 people similarly aged with similar health, similar IQ, but with self-described average memory skills. And what's so exciting about this study is they actually were able to use fMRI, which is, you know, pretty new technology and leaps and bounds above what MRI imaging can do because you can actually observe 
the blood flow changes that are happening in the brain in real time. So totally huge. Here's what happened. Basically, they realized that the only differences between people who are memory athletes and normal people was the connectivity patterns in the brain. So, you know, if you look today at an Olympian like Michael Phelps, you're going to notice that there are some actual structural changes. In the case of Michael Phelps, he has a longer wingspan, which allows him to move water more effectively. If you look at Olympic cyclists, they have crazy high VO2 and stuff like that. And you're actually seeing, in many cases, kind of mutations, if you I don't want to call them mutations because people straight go to X-Men, but you're seeing uniquenesses in their physiology that is allowing them to do a lot of this stuff. You know, Dean Carnassus, ultra marathoner we recently had on the show, his body reacts differently to lactic acid and, and oxygen and stuff like that. However, with these memory experts, all you're seeing is that their brains know how to make connections differently across 2,500 different areas of connectivity in the brain and a specific subset of 25 connections really stood out. They were being used by the memory athletes and they were not being used by other people. Now, anyone who has studied mnemonics gets this, immediately understands because the difference that we train in our students is number one, well, I guess I should say out of three, number one, visualization, right? Enhance every type of memory with visualization, visualize everything that you want to memorize. Number two, connect it to pre-existing knowledge, right? So that's two areas of the brain that we're now lighting up. that are not being lit up when someone else learns something new. And then number three in the study they were using, as I said, the method of LOCI, the memory palace technique, which is a whole different part of the brain when you're dealing with locations and remembering specific areas and putting memories into those specific areas, in a sense, creating a, a visual library in your brain. With regards to the other piece of the study, really, really interesting, taking completely untrained people, essentially before the training, individuals were able to recall on average 26 to 30 words. Those with the strategic memory training could recall more than double. So they could recall an average of 35 more words and those who just had some short-term memory training, not kind of specific memory palace technique, only got about 30% better. They could recall 11 more words. And those who had no memory training whatsoever, you know, just were practicing over and over and over and coming up with their own strategy, but not actual training, could remember only seven more words. A day later, these results stay the same. And I know you guys are wondering what the hell happened four months later. Only those with the strategic training, those who actually learned the memory palace technique, were able to show substantial gains. And here's what's so cool. The same day, they were able to do 35 more words on average. So over 100%, about 115% better performance. But four months later, without even training these techniques, they still got over 22 more words per training. So that's an 80% improvement, give or take. Just incredible. I mean, uh, it, like I said, if I had begged and pleaded and funded the study myself, I couldn't have asked for a better study because... This kind of exactly explains what we've been trying to show people, that it's just a matter of using your brain the way that evolution intended, actually harnessing different parts of the brain that are being used when you're just repeating over and over and over and over and over with rote memorization. And exactly as we say, you know, if you train for a short period of time, 
and it's just 30 minutes a day and you're essentially relearning how to use your brain. And there are very, very long lasting changes in the way that your brain works, not so much in the structure, but actually in the way that you're using the equipment that's given to you. It's really fascinating and, and, and so interesting. You know, I've, yeah, I'm sure you get this all the time, but it just makes me think of like, how can this really have such a huge impact, you know, for somebody who's listening and maybe thinking mm-hmm. to themselves, oh yeah, that sounds great. But like, if I'm going to try it, it's not really going to work. What would you say to someone? Yeah. You know, I, I get that so much that, uh, I actually came out with a lecture recently in our program and it's a concept. It's around a concept that I call the intellectual Pygmalion or golem effect. Uh, if anyone's familiar or anyone's kind of studied management, the Pygmalion effect is idea, this kind of weird, unexplainable phenomenon that came out of the Rosenthal Jacobs study, which I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe memory service was 1979. And what it says is if a manager or authority figure, such as a parent, teacher, whatever, believes that a student is a high performer, is intelligent, is going to be successful, whether or not they communicate that. In fact, even if they try to suppress their beliefs in a situation where they're supposed to be objective, such as in academia, teachers are not supposed to show that they believe or don't believe in a student. They're supposed to show that they believe in every student. Even if the authority figure tries to suppress that, the student will actually perform better or worse. Better is the Pygmalion effect. The Golem effect is the opposite. If I hire an employee and after the first week I start thinking, oh man, what a doofus. I completely screwed up hiring this guy. You can actually take an A performer and magically turn them into a B performer or worse. And what I realized over you know, half a decade now of teaching this stuff almost is the same thing is happening with ourselves that the, the highest authority figure to each and every one of us is our ego. And if people walk around telling themselves, and I've observed this in myself, you know, if I told you, Matt, that I always use the memory techniques that we teach, I would be lying because probably five times out of 10, I don't even use them. If it's not a significant memory challenge, such as memorizing a 16 digit number, you know, I'll just say a credit card number and I'll remember it. And what I realized is that something along the lines of what Harry Lorraine told me, which is even if these techniques don't work for you, they'll still work for you. (laughs) And what I realized is that just by believing that I have an exceptional and extraordinary memory by trusting my memory, I've flipped from the Pygmalion effect to the Golem effect. And my ego's incentive, my mind's incentive is always to prove me right. And so if I'm telling myself I have a lousy memory, I'm really bad with names or I don't know, you know, I hear so many of these. I I get emails every single day, Matt. I'm a horrible language learner. I have this undiagnosed learning disability. I've always been told that I'm not good at math. Those things become self-fulfilling prophecies. And I think one one of the greatest side effects, if you will, of any program, whether it's ours, whether it's my friend, Anthony Mativier's, whether it's Tony Buzan's, any training program is people start to believe, you know, I have this tool in my pocket. I'm actually incredibly bright and I'm actually incredibly gifted with my memory. And I actually can do this and I can remember this phone number and people see just a dramatic switch, a really, really dramatic switch solely by believing in in themselves. And I know it sounds so touchy feely, but like I said, the research backs it up. And I tend to believe if a manager can influence your results, just imagine how much your own self-talk and walking around telling people, oh my God, I'm such a klutz. I'm so forgetful. I have the worst memory. 
just imagine the effect that that has on you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So let's get into some of the specifics of kind of how the brain is supposed to work from a memory standpoint. I know one of the things you've talked yeah. about is kind of the picture superiority effect. I don't know if that's a piece of it or if that's the, you know, kind of one of the mm-hmm. cornerstones, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about that specifically and more broadly, how our, you know, how our brains should be learning and how we can start to learn and memorize in a way that kind of speaks the evolutionary language of the brain. Yes, absolutely. So I will preface this by saying I'm not a neuroscientist and I don't even pass as one on the internet. But what I have been able to do is take a lot of neuroscience and a lot of research, both from the soft sciences, right? So from psychology and stuff like that, and from the hard sciences, understanding the small amounts of neuroscience that I do put into my courses and synthesize those 
And the truth is, I have to say that they're all sync up and mesh up perfectly together. So we know a lot of different things about the brain, despite the fact that we know less about our brains than we do the bottom of the ocean floor. We know actually quite a bit about them. And one of the things that we do know is that our brains are built in clusters, in networks. And, and a lot of people are hearing the terms neural networks thrown around. Many people, in fact, who are software developers may not even realize that that is a real thing outside of computer science. Neural networks refer to the clusters of neurons in our brains. Now, our neurons are basically electrically excitable cells. We have, if I'm not mistaken, 100 billion of them. More, there are more neurons in your brain than there are stars in the known universe, which is kind of a really, really amazing thing if you think about it. The human brain is far and away the most complex object known which I just think is so cool. It, it'll probably be another 100 years before we're able to design something as complex and sophisticated as the human brain, and yet it runs on 20 watts of power. So a little aside on how amazing our brains are. These neurons are co connected by synapses, which are just think of them as little electrically connective pathways. And the way that they're set up and built is essentially in clusters. The brain is highly plastic. It's always building new connections. Every time we go to bed, it's building connections. It's removing connections. And you can think of your knowledge as organized in these clusters, these chunks, which are called neural networks. The way that we enhance our memory is really threefold. I like to think of it as threefold, and then I'll put it into context a little bit as far as some of the research goes and, and what some of the theorists on adult andragogy or learning have said. The first thing is, as you said, picture superiority effect. The way that our brains work, really interesting. Our strongest and most memorable scent is actually smell and taste, which are effectively the same scents. And that's because smell and scent are way older than any of our other senses. In fact, they're hardwired directly into the brain. I believe it's the thalamus. Again, don't quote me on that. And that's why if someone passes out and you put smelling salts under their nose, they will wake up because smell is very, very deeply rooted. Unfortunately, that doesn't help us for a lot of our learning challenges. And so our second most memorable sense, which makes sense from a very evolutionary perspective, is sight, right? What's going to be your most powerful evolutionary advantage? It's probably going to be smell and taste because so many of our ancestors died from food poisoning, right? And bacteria and poisonous foods and poisonous spiders and God knows what. But the next thing is going to be visual. How do the berries look that poison the tribe? What are the colors of you know the enemy that I need to be aware of? And of course, location, which is so closely related to visualization. Where is the watering hole? Where did I bury the food? So both visual memory, as you said, the picture superiority effect and location are deeply ingrained in us. And if anyone doesn't believe me, I, I challenge you to think back to your childhood home whether or not you have been there in the last 20 or 30 years. And just imagine yourself going into your parents' bedroom, which was probably a room that you weren't allowed into very often, and then go to your mother's side of the bed and ask yourself whether or not there was a nightstand, and if so, what was on that nightstand. And I've asked this question probably to a thousand people over the years. And every single time, even with people who tell me they're not visual learners, even with people who tell me they have lousy memories, every single time people have told me 
exactly what was on that nightstand or that there wasn't a nightstand. And in fact, there was the, the dog's bed was there. So really interesting. That's principle one. Principle number two, which again ties in very, very deeply with the, the adult andragogy theory is connecting all of our knowledge to pre-existing knowledge. As I said, our brains are built on these connections and there's something called Hebb's law, which says that neurons that fire together, wire together. Meaning the more connected a memory is to other memories, the stronger those connections will be and the more easy it is going to be to fire that neuron when we need it. So everything that we learn should be connected to other pieces of knowledge that we have. Malcolm Knowles, as I said, suggested this. I mean, essentially he was working for three decades on his theories of adult andragogy. And in 1980, finally published his four principles, one of which was that experience, including mistakes, must provide the basis for learning activities. In other words, he found that experience and connecting to pre-existing knowledge is so much more relevant for adults than it is for children, which makes perfect sense if you think that adults have so much more experience and children are able to learn just because of the novelty and kind of newness of things that kind of wears off for adults. And then I would say, yeah, the, the third thing is, is exactly that is even as adults, we can take advantage of novelty and newness. Our brains thrive on novelty. They're always sensing patterns. In fact, as I said, they are the most sophisticated supercomputers in the known universe and their specialization, what they can do that even the most powerful supercomputers cannot do is pattern recognition. Things like you know, recognizing exactly what is in an image. The reason that we all do so many captures every day is because if a piece of text is even slightly outside of what the computer expects to see, they can't do it. And yet a, a two-year-old child who spent, you know, a, a week memorizing the alphabet can do it. So novelty is really, really powerful for our brains. They are pattern sensing machines. And if anything falls outside of the pattern, they pay very special attention to it. So coming back to lesson number one, we always want to be thinking of very novel and creative imagery. And then I would say as, as the bonus is learning how to put things into space. So learning how to use the memory palace technique and then combining all of the above. So the beauty of the memory palace technique is you're taking imagery, which is you're putting images at what we call markers in the course into an imagined visual location, such as your childhood home or your office or whatever it might be. You're then connecting it to that pre-existing knowledge because it is an, a location that you know, and they are images comprised of elements from your memory. And then you're making things incredibly novel and unique. You're making strange visualizations that make no sense logically, but are therefore highly, highly memorable. So, that, in a sense, is the way that you really tick off all the boxes. You, you learn to structure your memories. You learn to build out deliberate neural networks. You learn, obviously, on top of that, to do reviewing and spaced repetition in the right ways. And you know, it sounds so simple, but you'd be amazed at the results that you can get simply by taking advantage of these and, and by restructuring the way that you learn and memorize new information. So many different pieces of that that I want to dig into. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about kind of how do we sort of encode our new knowledge onto pre-existing knowledge? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, why don't, why don't we take something that we want to learn and let's play around with it. Toss me something that I could memorize. Maybe we could do, we could do a foreign language word if you want. We could do 
any kind of fact. We could do numbers, figures. I guess I could give you some foreign language words, you know, that I've learned over the years and we could play around with that. Yeah, I'm down for whatever, however you want to do it. Yeah, cool. So I'll never forget. This is one of my like favorite learning stories because I, uh, so I learned basic conversational Russian over the last couple of years. Russian is a very, very hard language. So I feel like as any foreigner, you always have to qualify. Like I didn't learn Russian. I learned very basic Russian. I speak like a two-year-old, but in any case, one of my favorite words in Russian is otkriti, which means open. And I like that example because it, it literally sounds nothing like open, right? Like otkriti, totally strange word. So the way that I would teach a student to learn a word like that is to break it down into its component elements until it's recognizable, right? So ot and maybe kriti. Now, the beauty of using this method is, you know, if we need to use pre-existing knowledge, it therefore would mean that the more pre-existing knowledge we have, the easier it's going to be to learn something. So for example, when I give this lecture in Israel and I talk about otkriti, it's actually easier for people in the audience to learn because ot in Hebrew means letter, letter as in uh, alphabet letter. And kriti is actually the way that you would say critical. So I ask people to imagine a critical letter, the most critical letter in the alphabet, and then imagine the fact that it's opening up to give them a hug. Now, if you're an English speaker, you can still do this, right? So let's imagine we want to go with obviously very vivid, maybe even violent imagery because it's going to be more memorable. So I want you to imagine a situation in which you've been, heaven forbid, stabbed, right? And so you're holding your gut and you run up to the emergency room and you think to yourself that it really should be open. It ought to be open because I'm in critical, in a critical situation, right? So you have the ot and kriti. Then you realize, thank God it is open, that the emergency room is always open. So you've now encoded that meaning to maybe some pre-existing image or concept or idea that you have about an emergency room. And then if you really wanted to kind of supercharge it, you would think of maybe a specific movie or situation in which someone was stabbed you might even think of Julius Caesar doing it because that's going to connect with all different ideas and knowledge that you have about stabbings and betrayal. And it's literally as easy as that, as taking a visualization that you might already have for something that seems unrelated, right? Like what does a stabbing have to do with the Russian word for open? But I guess what I would stress to people is that the actual connections themselves don't make sense really any any difference whatsoever so much as that you make them you make these strange logical jumps but just the fact that you make them is really what gets the job done i, I recently built a memory palace because i'm i'm studying piano and music theory as well and i needed to come up with a memory palace to have the circle of fifths and i come up with the most ridiculous visualizations like for some reason an a you know the a chord for me is army guys and B is a bass trap because it happens to be in my recording studio. And it it kind of doesn't matter, you know, as long as I remember that a bass trap is B. I remember, well, I can't say some of them because they're they're pretty they're pretty indecent. But uh, let's see, an A sharp is all is sharp, so it's where I stand with my computer and I check the videos in the room. 
really any connection works. It doesn't even matter. G-sharp is a G-shock watch in the closet of the room. It's just a matter of making these logical connections and, and connecting. You know, I remember when I was 13 years old, these G-shock watches were considered really, really sharp and everybody wanted one. And so that's when I think of G-sharp, I just get a G-shock. It's much more memorable to remember that than try and remember the letters G and hashtag or pound in the corner of the room. It's so much easier to visualize something that I already know what it looks like. So do memory palaces get crowded? You know, if you're using the same image or the same space again and again, do those memories start to get jumbled and, and bleed together? Especially one of the examples I've seen you sort of doing some memory homework on my own is, is using kind of the same image for numbers. And, you know, after a while, I feel like it would start to get, start to sort of bleed together and become really, really hard to mm -hmm. coherently sort of recall any of those memories. That is precisely right, Matt. I always say that these techniques are kind of a victim of their own success in the sense that, you know, I've created memory palaces and then years and years and years and years later, I still remember the order. I mean, they, it literally works that effectively. And so I've made the mistake in the past, right? I was, I was, coaching my girlfriend on a Ted talk that she had to give. And I said, okay, well, why don't we do it in a place that we both know? So I wasted effectively one of the best memory palaces I could use, which was a new apartment that I not so long ago moved into. And now it's her Ted talk. And I, I kind of can't reuse it. I mean, I could, if I really wanted to do the spring cleaning, I know a lot of memory athletes. In fact, most of them do reuse memory palaces, but that's typically for things that they go through once in a competition. Right. So when someone's memorizing 24 decks of cards back to back, they're using a predetermined memory palace or when they're doing speed cards where they try to memorize a deck of cards and, you know, the current world records, 24 seconds, you don't have time to build a new memory palace on the fly. So they use the same one over and over, but it's not something that they're reviewing. Whereas when I'm memorizing a speech or memorizing words in the Russian vocabulary or, or the circle of fifths, I'm reusing that memory palace over and over and over. And it gets really, really, really ingrained in. Fortunately, memory palaces are free. <laughs> you know, you can create as many as you want, whenever you want. It's very easy and you'll effectively never run out of places. Every shop you've ever gone into, you can use as a memory palace. And you'll find that like so many places, if I think about it, there are 10 different grocery stores that I go to in my neighborhood, depending on, you know, what I want to buy that day. And I know the layout of all those grocery stores automatically. And, and most people in the audience do too. Uh, I remember so many classrooms from my childhood. I remember all of my aunts and uncles and their houses. And if not, when in doubt, you know, I've met many a memory champion who will just window shop. <laughs> you know, you need a new memory palace. You go into a clothing store. You say, yeah, this place looks big enough. You walk in. Can I help you with anything? No, just browsing, <laughs> you know, and you kind of just walk around and create a memory palace. It's really all it takes. You really don't need more than that. And in fact, people ask, well, what if I get it wrong? What if I forget? It actually doesn't matter. As long as you get it wrong consistently every single time, you can use completely fictional areas. You can use the levels of your favorite video games. If you have them memorized, you can use streets, cities. You can use completely fictional structures the main point is that you always consistently remember the exact same layout and order of things. So this is going to get like kind of into the weeds, but I'm curious, like how many things 
will you typically put into a given room of a memory palace and how do you ensure that you kind of pull them out of that room in the right order? It completely depends. Sometimes I've coached chess prodigies who need to memorize hundreds of things in a room and and we've worked on creating structures that allow that kind of density. And I've done simple memory palaces, like I said, for a, a 10 minute TED talk where I want to structure the information in such a way that each idea is in a room and it may end up that I have three sentences on a specific idea, but again, you create completely artificial logic. And so, you know, the part where I talk about the person getting sick, well, that goes in the bedroom logically, or, you know, the part where I talk about the years of hard work I did that goes in the office. As far as order, there is a method to the kind of madness when you go through a memory palace. If it is something like a speech that needs to be done in order, you go along the outside walls of a room. You can do it clockwise or counterclockwise. Personally, I like to go clockwise, but I know when I'm working with people in Israel, because of the way that Hebrew is written, they like to go uh, counterclockwise, right to left. In a lot of scenarios, by the way, if you're memorizing vocabulary, it doesn't really matter, right? So sometimes I'll structure by letter. So K is kitchen, O is office, you know, B is bathroom, so on and so forth. But what I've realized, actually a student of mine pointed it out to me, is that doesn't really help me because there are very few situations in which I'm searching for a B word unless you're writing poetry. And so he pointed out to me, and I love it when students <laughs> improve the methods and then and pass it back to me. He goes, it's more often that you're going to be searching for a verb or you're going to be searching for a specific adjective. I mean, even in English, when you're talking, you have something right on the tip of your tongue. You're like, what is that? What is that adjective that I need right now? So he said, you know, why don't you set it up that the entire first floor of the house is nouns, the second floor of the house is adjectives, third floor is verbs and so on. And since he said that, I've realized that that is a much better way to structure your memory palace. And it actually doesn't matter the order of things and where you put them. You just go based on the logic, right? So the, you know, if you have an entire floor, which has the dining room, the TV room and the kitchen all on one floor, then the verb for to saute goes on the stove and the verb for to cook goes to the right of the stove where the oven is and the verb for to wash goes in the sink. And then you're again, connecting that pre-existing knowledge, creating more encoded connections because you know that that's where you wash. And so just the fact, even if I forget the actual word, I just go and I visit the sink and I go, okay, why the hell do I have a care bear rubbing a grasshopper on his face. Okay, right, right, right. To wash is so-and-so. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And so I think the other key point that I want to kind of just underscore, understand a little bit better is how you, when you say you put a verb on the, you know, the stovetop, for example, what is that verb? Like when you go and look at the stovetop, what are you actually seeing? Yeah. So that was an example I just kind of pulled out of nowhere. So why don't we actually do it? I'm going to teach everyone a word in Hebrew. So to cook in Hebrew, every infinitive word starts with la. Like in English, you would say to. So to cook, le vachel, la or le. So I guess in English, you would spell it L-E-V-E-S-H-E-L. Le vachel. The lay, you probably don't have to encode, but we could encode it anyway. Most likely, if you're studying the language, you would just know that that is 
the infinitive form. And so what I would do if I were relearning Hebrew is I would actually take the root. So all Semitic languages, again, a little bit of a detour out into the weeds, but all Semitic languages like Arabic, Turkish, I believe, Amharic, Farsi have this root where if I know these three letters, I can kind of form any word around it. I, I can form any form of the word. So for example, uh, cooking, like culinary cooking is bishul. I cooked bishalti, vishalti. What else? Cook this, tevashel itze. And you kind of know based on the B or V, the BV switches. I chose a kind of tough example, but based on those three letters, I can form anything. So what I might want to do is just form a visual marker, getting back to your question, around B-E-S-H-E-L. Are you with me so far? Yeah, definitely. And I'm trying to sort of think about in my head, like what a visual marker would be. Like maybe I'm thinking yeah, of so, like a, a shell of some kind, maybe like wearing yeah, a lay perfect. so that I could get like the lay part. Perfect. Perfect. So I want you to think that's exactly what I needed because I want to use your imagery, not my own. And there, a lot of people ask me, they're like, well, why don't you sell you know, a, a library of images that you have an animator come up with for each language. A lot of our students want to learn biology or whatever. And I say, it's not going to work <laughs> because I need your imagery. So I love the idea of a lay, right? So let's imagine you go to the stove and you're wearing a lay. And then what you do is you actually lay down on the stove, a shrimp, right? Cause you're about to cook it. But the thing is you realize that this is the best shrimp you've ever seen because the shell is so bright red, right? Or we could even make it a lobster, right? So le be shell. In this case, it would actually be le va shell because the word has to change. There's kind of a weird grammatical rule, but we're going to go with it. You could also just think of something with a vest. So for example, vest, you want to try and avoid encoding these extra characters, right? So le is perfect. Ve, how could we think of, and this is why, you know, when I said, actually the more languages, you know, the easier this becomes, we would want to think of something with a ve. So for example, the, the lobster is riding a Vespa or he's wearing a vest and then shell is perfect. Remembering that that lobster is wearing a shell. Now you want to take that actual visualization. You want to put it right there on the stove, the actual stove that you're thinking of. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm envisioning a slightly different thing, but like I'm seeing like a giant seashell riding a Vespa and I'm like gently laying it on the stovetop. Yeah, just remember you want to encode the order. Oh, that's important. Carefully. Call. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Yeah, otherwise you're going to come back with Velachelle or something like that. Vechala. That's a, spe a very tough word specifically. Like I like it when, and, and this is always why I tell people the more languages you learn, the easier this gets <laughs> because you have a larger library of sounds. I can't think of anything in English that works with just ve. Let's see. Ve, ve, ve. It, whereas, you know, in Hebrew, ve means and. So super easy, right? Yeah. I was thinking maybe like a V or like victory or something, but I think. I, yeah, that's I, perfect. That's I, perfect. I think this is a good example of sort of a visual marker and how to create one. Exactly. Really quickly. Exactly. And, and for anyone in the audience who's wondering like, oh my God, this is impossible. How is this not so much slower? Once you're practiced at it, and a lot of what we do is actually creativity training because a lot of this takes 
retooling the way you think creatively to the point where, you know, when someone introduces themselves and, and, or herself and says, my name is Sangita, you immediately go to this woman sitting, you know, in a gi, which is a karate uniform in the sun and remarking, ah, you know, and that's one that I just came up with <laughs> now. So you immediately get to this place very, very quickly. Sangita. That's a great example. There's so much more I wanted to dig into about memory palaces, but I know we're sort of winding up on time. I want to dig in a little bit on speed reading as well, because I know that's another area that that you're an expert in. Personally, I'm really curious because I've always sort of considered myself an auditory learner. And my fear is, you know, if I completely move away from sub-vocalization, that it's going to reduce my sort of comprehension. And I think more broadly, a lot of people have that sort of fear of, if they're going to get into speed reading, it's going to really negatively impact comprehension and retention. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm curious as somebody who teaches this and is as an expert in it, what's your experience been and how have you been able to, in some cases, actually improve retention with speed reading? Yeah. So this is a really, really great question. And one that I've dug into very recently uh, for a YouTube series that we're doing on just exactly this question, like how does speed reading work? And is it actually a hoax? And what I realized is you know, we were in a lot of ways feeding into a lot of misconceptions because when people hear the term speed reading, they're thinking about these Howard Berg, 12,000 word a minute or Ann Jones, 5,000 word a minute guarantees. And as I dug into the research, I mean, we don't make those kinds of claims, but as I dug into the research, I realized that that's what people specifically academics think of when they think of speed reading. And most of that is bullshit. In fact, the vast majority, Ann Jones has been tested at 5,000 words per minute. Howard Berg claims to read 12,000 words a minute. He also went to prison for false advertising. So there's a lot of controversy around speed reading. And so I want to very clearly out front explain to people that the kind of speed reading I'm about to talk about is not 5,000 words a minute. It's not even 2,000 words a minute. It's 600 to 800 words a minute. Interestingly enough, when you look into the academic papers and the research that are supposedly disproving speed reading, they, in a roundabout kind of indirect, inintentional way, prove speed reading because they say, in our test, we were only able to confirm people reading between 600 and 800 words a minute and so on and so forth. So kind of really interesting. And and we have a video coming out on our YouTube where I, I analyze the kind of most prominent paper disproving speed reading by Keith Rayner, Elizabeth Schotter, Michael Masson, and so on. But in any case, essentially the the core claim, the core kind of technique behind speed reading is the same no matter who you talk to, whether it's us or the guys claiming 5,000 words a minute. I mean, when you get up into the, the really fast speeds, people are claiming things like photo reading and reading an entire page at once, and, and that's all BS. But the kind of reasonable claims are very simple. It's training your eyes to recognize even the stuff that's slightly fuzzy outside of what's called the fovea, the exact area where your eyes focus. So training the brain to recognize a couple words at once, even if they're a little bit blurry or even a few words, minimizing the motion of the eyes and minimizing the amount of focus that you have on the edges of the pages. Then of course, minimizing backskipping. And most importantly, kind of the thing that everyone agrees on is minimizing subvocalization or that voice that we hear in our heads. Now, you said something very, very interesting, Matt, which I want to touch on. And it's this idea that 
you know, I worry if I completely get rid of sub vocalization that I won't be able to comprehend. And you're absolutely right. We realized that our trainings were not completely clear because we were telling people reduce sub vocalization, reduce when in fact the word we should have been using was minimize. Minimize, but not eliminate. You cannot eliminate subvocalization. It's just the way that our brains work. And because reading is a linguistic activity, you're always going to hear some of the words in kind of the, the mind's voice. The trick of speed reading is to try and minimize that as much as possible because it does slow you down. We can process verbal information auditory information at about a maximum of 340 words a minute. There's some people 400 words per minute. If you want to test this out, go on YouTube or better yet, go on something like Overcast, which allows you to actually take audio beyond 2x. YouTube has realized this and so they only allow you to go to 2x. The average person speaks at about 140, 150 words a minute. So the math checks out. But if you try to go to 3x, you'll quickly realize that you can't differentiate the words. Whereas with speed reading, you kind of start at 450 words a minute. And as I said, kind of the research in indirectly proves that a lot of speed readers are able to get 600, 700, and even 800 words per minute with very high comprehension. And the way that you do that is, in fact, minimizing but not reducing subvocalization to an absolute zero. And what about, you know, for somebody who's primarily an auditory learner, is that going to have a, a more negative impact on their subvocalization? You know, I kind of reject the idea of someone being an auditory learner, similar to the way that I reject someone as just being inherently weak. If you take someone who's inherently weak and you put them in a weight room and you train them on how to properly do squats and how to properly do deadlifts, they will quickly become strong. And I think the same is true of the various ways that we learn. I think many people not to throw you under a bus here, Matt, but I think many people who claim to be auditory learners are auditory learners because they were taught in an auditory fashion. They spent you know, most of their childhood listening to someone lecture. Generally, when I sit down with someone like that and I, I teach them visual learning strategies, it's night and day for them. With that said, I don't completely shun auditory learning. I think it has a very valuable place for us, especially given how much we all spend in our cars and on our bikes and walking our dogs. I think it's great to listen to audiobooks. But even in the case where you are doing auditory learning, I always encourage my students to be setting markers to be doing the visual work. So as you're listening to that podcast, if there are things that you want to remember, if there are book titles that you want to note for later, create a memory palace as you're going. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk starts talking about one of his favorite books, create a marker for Cloud C. Hopkins. How are you going to remember that? And then put it, you know, right on the tree next to where your dog did its business so that you're going to remember it later. Because otherwise, a lot of that stuff, even for self-proclaimed auditory learners, is going to go in one ear and out the other. And I think the same is true, by the way, when we read a book in the normal fashion. When we all just sit there and read a book, how much do we actually remember even if we're reading it slowly at 200, 200 words a minute, how much do you actually, actually remember three months later? You know, whereas my students will flip back through that same book and go, oh, yeah, this is the part where Benjamin Franklin took that wheelbarrow. Oh, right. Yeah, he did say that he did that. You know, they will actually have archival knowledge based on the images that they've created and the visual linkages and kind of the encoding of the knowledge that they've done. And I think that's eight, 70 to 80 percent of the benefit of our program is teaching people how to use their memories properly in any situation where whether it's you meet five people at a conference all at once everyone shakes hands 
four out of those five people, you know, besides the person who's been trained immediately forget the names. That's one situation. Remembering a phone number, you know, that you need when you don't have a pen and paper, that's another situation. Whatever it may be, I think the crux of the method and and the real value is maybe not so much even in the speed reading so much as the ability to actually retain the information that you profess to learn. And does kind of focusing on or creating these these visual sort of memory anchors while you're reading, does that slow down kind of your reading speed? Yes and no. We advise people to create these markers during pauses, after paragraphs, while flipping pages, in between chapters and things like that. Because for most people, it's not something that you can do at once. You can't be using the visualization centers of the brain to read and do that visualization at the same time. With that said, I have experienced and many other people who've taken the course and we don't make this guarantee because it's kind of inconsistent as to when it shows up for people. But after maybe six to eight months of practicing this stuff myself, the visualizations usually just come up in my mind automatically. And it kind of happens as I'm going from one line to the next. And and I start to formulate these images as I go along. So in that case, it doesn't really slow you down. What does slow you down is you do need to review back. And we do tell people, you know, as soon as you finish a chapter or an idea, close the book, hold your finger where it is. You know, if it's a Kindle, just put it down and review back and flip back. And and that's something that's called spaced repetition. Then do it again when you get to the end of the next chapter. What are the last three chapters that I read? You need to be doing that review process. And that does slow you down. And we also advise people to do something called pre-reading which is where you flip through the chapter and start assessing what are going to be the different things that are going to be talked about at about eight times the speed you would normally read, but just to get an oversight and to prepare your brain for the things that you're going to be learning. What are some of the keywords? What are some of the questions that they're going to be asking or answering? What are things that I want to look out for? What are things that raise my interest that I'm unclear on? Why is this appearing in the text? So all those things do slow you down, but on average, you're still going to find that you're reading significantly faster. And they, they also f- serve to improve your focus so you're not backskipping nearly as much. And do you have any kind of recommendation on or sort of tactic about reading paper books versus Kindles or digital reading? Is there any kind of is there one that's better than the other? Yeah, well, see, I like the Kindle for a couple different reasons. Number one is I can adjust the size of the text, which is important. If you're speed reading, you want to be able to get the text to exactly the size where two to three saccades or two to three fixations are going to be the right size for you. I also think I love the little x-ray preview feature because I can pre-read very quickly. I just tap on the pages and then I hit the X button and I'm back on the actual page itself. And then the other thing that I think is really, really, really valuable that you're not going to get unless you're reading digitally is I highlight. And then what I do is I highlight kind of key areas, key points. And then I just go to, I think it's read.amazon.com slash my highlights. And I just review. So instead of actually flipping through the book and searching for my highlights, I just scroll through them. So every time I finish a book, I go through the last few books that I've read once a year. I'll kind of get nostalgic, usually towards the end of the year, and I'll flip through all the books that I read the previous year and I'll review. And so my knowledge of the books that I read, even though I read kind of an absurd amount, right? Like in a given year, I might read 20 to 40 books, but my knowledge of those books versus someone else who who reads at that quantity is pretty remarkably high. 
if you were to quiz me on a lot of those books, I think I would do pretty well. And that's because I actually take the time to review the books. And that's so much easier when you have them all on one web page, you know, stored on Amazon that all I have to do is flip through them. So what would one piece of homework be that you'd give to somebody listening who wants to maybe take a take an action step or kind of a first step towards implementing some of the strategies we've talked about today? I love that you asked that question, Matt. First action step, I think it's just to make the world a little bit of a better place by making some connections with real humans. <laughs> it's it's nice to be able to memorize all the capitals of all the countries in the world, but I think what the world needs is is people to look one another in the eyes and smile and relate to other human beings just a little bit more. So the homework that I would uh, give is to just go out today and learn the names of 10 completely random strangers. They can be the bag boy at your supermarket. They can be the person who clears your table at the restaurant. But look 10 other human beings in the eyes and smile at them and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? And then memorize those names using the techniques. You know, Imagine Mike holding a microphone. Imagine Robert with dressed up like Robert E. Lee. Imagine Mark dressed up as Mark Twain and see if you can remember those people's names. And for listeners who want to dig in, learn more, find you, your books, your courses, et cetera, online, what's the best place to do that? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple different options here. For people who want to try out the course, we offer a completely free trial uh, with no credit card required. And people, I think, can take the entire first two sections of the course. They can test their memory and reading speed and everything. And they can do that at becomeasuperlearner.com. And for folks who want more superhuman optimization around nutrition and, and memory and productivity and lifestyle, they can go to superhuman.blog where we put out a weekly free podcast with some of the world's top performers similar to yourself, Matt. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this wisdom, so many practical strategies and tips. And I, and I really think that kind of both sort of speed reading and this sort of enhanced learning memory techniques, et cetera, in many ways, a kind of a meta skill that, you know, if you master that, 100%. It, it's like a domino that makes everything easier, makes everything more effective. It's something I definitely personally need to step my game up on. So I'm really glad that we had this conversation. I feel like I really got a lot out of it. So thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. And you know what? I couldn't agree with you more. I am often quoting as saying, learning is the only skill that truly matters. And I believe it. I went from, you know, being completely dissatisfied with who I was academically, socially, and professionally to just through learning, whether it's learning leadership skills, academic skills, business skills, financial skills, even athletic skills, you know, and, and picking up new hobbies. I literally was able to become someone that I'm very proud of to look in the mirror. And it, the only difference was that I learned how to learn more effectively. Jonathan, thanks again. Really appreciate uh, having you on the show. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including 
an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're gonna get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.